As I mentioned earlier, the text for the sermon this morning is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. where God reveals the following to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. After the sermon, we will sing once again from Psalm 33. Psalm 33, stanzas 4, 5, and 6, after the sermon. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you really think about it, it would be hard to find a more dramatic statement in all of literature than Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And also the first three chapters. Everything else in Scripture rests on this historical revelation. This is the beginning of God's self-revelation. The first three chapters of Genesis contain the record of the beginning of the universe... The heavens and the earth, the beginning of time, the beginning of space, the beginning of matter, the beginning of material, the beginning of history, the beginning of redemption. Everything in the Bible is connected with these first chapters. And here we find answers to ultimate questions. Who are we? Why are we here? Where did we come from? Where did the world come from? Is there a God? Most importantly, who is God? Where did he come from? Did he really use, create the world in six days? Or did he use some form of evolution to create the world? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? What is sin? What are the consequences of sin? What is death? What is beauty? Can it be defined? What is family? What is marriage? Does God really care about this world? Does he really care about me? Is there hope for this life? Is there hope for life after this life? If we want to know about life and death and God and our relationship to him, you need to study this book because this is where we find the answers. And if you are wrong about these chapters, you will be wrong about a lot of other things. And you will be wrong in other places in Scripture. So it's very important that we listen carefully to what God has to say to us at the very beginning of His Holy Word. So I proclaim to you the Word of God under this theme, in the beginning, God. That's where the emphasis lies. We'll consider who He is, what he did, and what he's doing. Those are very familiar words, aren't they? In the beginning, God. And that word, God, dominates the first three chapters 
of this book. I think I read somewhere this week that it's, it's used 35 times in the beginning of the book of Genesis. And God said, and God said, and God said. And this passage and the first chapters in this book, the entire Bible is really about God. God is who this is all about. This is his self-revelation to mankind. And note that the Bible doesn't try to argue for the existence of God or the origin of God. It simply assumes, Moses just assumes, that God exists. We don't find a scientific or a philosophical argument for the existence of God, but just this profound statement, in the beginning, God. That's important for us to be aware of. We confess the existence of God. Accepting the existence of God is, first of all, a matter of faith. That doesn't mean, of course, that we may not use or should not use well-reasoned arguments for the existence of God. The Lord has created us with a mind, with logic and reason. Logic and reason are useful tools to help us convince people that God exists. If you were walking on the beach and you see the words, David loves Sarah, scratched in the sand, you understand that it was an intelligent mind that put those words there. You're not going to think all the waves did that. Information demands an intelligent mind. Creation demands a creator. DNA, for example, contains the genetic code to develop a human, a plant, or an animal. And there are millions and millions of codes in DNA. Information that requires an intelligent mind. Creation demands a creator. There is a reasonable and a rational argument for the existence of God, and there are many more examples that could be given. You do not have to be irrational to believe in the creator God of the Bible. And yet, ultimately, belief in the existence of God is a matter of faith. Because to believe in God, one must submit the heart and the mind and the will to the self-revelation of the creator God. The Holy Spirit can and does certainly bless the use of rational arguments. Just think of how often the Apostle Paul reasoned with the Jews or argued with the philosophers of Athens in Acts 17. But only the Holy Spirit can bring about change in the heart and life of one who rejects God. And this God congregation, this God stands at the beginning of creation. At the beginning of creation week, before there was material and time, before there was earth and heaven, before there was space or molecules. Before the beginning, there was nothing except God. Elohim, that's the word used for God, as translated as God. Elohim. El is the word for God, and the last part of that word is actually a plural ending. Literally, the word is God's. Hebrew scholars call this a majestic plural, meaning that it intensifies the meaning of the word. So in this case, it intensifies our understanding of who God is. El means God or Lord. Elohim then is the Almighty One, the All-Powerful One. God Almighty. All power belongs to Him. 
and all other power is delegated power. He is the almighty God, unlimited, infinite, nothing is too hard for him. He is eternal, he is uncreated, he has no beginning or end. And he is the first cause of everything other than himself. And he is beyond time and beyond space and outside of his own creation. This is confirmed elsewhere. Moses also wrote Psalm 90, and we sang from that psalm, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Or listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. He was, and he is, and he always will be. He is completely self-sufficient, self-satisfied, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is impossible for him. He can do whatever he wants, and he is sovereign. Well, congregation, let's reflect on that for a moment. God is not dependent on anything or anyone outside of himself. We, however, are fully dependent on things beyond ourselves. We depend on food and water for life. We depend on the sun and the earth for our existence. We need God, but he does not need us. When the Apostle Paul was in Athens, he was using logic and reason to convince the Athenians to believe in God. And he said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So God is far above his creation. He is not part of his creation. That's a very popular notion in today's culture, isn't it? Belief that God is part of everything around us and that we too are part of the divine. Some also believe that when we die, we somehow become part of creation. We get absorbed into the divine. You can see evidence of that sometime when you walk around in a park and you see a tree dedicated to the memory of someone who passed away. And sometimes people will even bury the ashes of a loved one around that tree so that the ashes of that person get absorbed into the tree. And the popular belief is then that that the spirit or the essence of that diseased person is absorbed back into creation. And since creation is Mother Earth, as it's commonly called, it's considered divine. So that, that spirit of that person is then absorbed into the divine. And there are many variations of this belief. That's also why Native spirituality, Native American spirituality is so popular today as well. But what we learn from Genesis 1 is that God is above and he is separate and distinct from what he's made. Think about this. Of what value is a God who is part of the rocks and the trees and the animals? Can such a God help you? Can you have a relationship with a God like that? But our creator is Elohim. He is different. And he is almighty. 
And there is nothing he does not see or understand. There is nothing that he cannot help you with. There is also nothing over which he is not Lord and Master. As creator, he is the owner of all he has made. And so we owe him our allegiance and our worship. Again, does that impact you? Are you willing to submit to his will and to his law and to his care? Do you live with that in mind when you make decisions at work or in the privacy of your own home or in the middle of a baseball game? Or when your life doesn't go the way you expect it to go? Do you behave in a way that shows that you know that God sees you and hears you and knows your thoughts? Do you realize that your existence is for his glory and not for your own comfort? That you were intended to worship him and not yourself or anything else? After all, he is the one who not only created the world, but he also brought you into existence. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what he did. So we know who he is. He created The Hebrew word indicates that he created from nothing. We need material things to make something. We can rearrange things that exist, but we cannot create anything. But God brings forth things from that which does not exist. We read from Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Or think of what the New Testament author of Hebrews writes, In Hebrews 11, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God did this and he created with power and with wisdom and with unparalleled genius. And he didn't do this over billions of years. He did not use some form of evolution. But in six ordinary days he created the heavens and the earth, everything that's up there and everything that's down here. The heavens and the earth and everything in between, he spoke it into existence. So without God, there would be no beginning of anything. Again, creation demands a creator. Out of nothing, nothing can come. And to ask, well, who created God? That's a never-ending circle of reasoning. That's like a dog chasing its own tail. There's no end to that. Evolution demands that chance combined with eons of time can produce something. But chance is nothing. Chance can do nothing. Chance is a pagan myth. And time, time is no god. Time and chance cannot, they don't have creative power. The only rational explanation for anything is the God who has revealed himself by his spoken word. Before there was anything, creation existed only in the mind of God. Before time, there was no time. No people, no angels, no matter. 
And Elohim, his sovereign hand, has always been sovereign. And he simply chose to create because of his sovereign goodwill. And because he is infinitely wise, he knew exactly how to do it. And so this God made everything. He made you. He made your life. Only God can create life. You are not the product of culture or chance or ultimately even of your parents. You are God's. You are his. He made you in his image. He decided who you would be, where you would be, when you would be, what you would be, and what abilities you would have. In congregation, this is absolutely foundational to our faith in God because if we don't believe this, we, in effect, undermine the entire record of Scripture. If we do not believe this, We cannot believe in the existence of the Son of God as our Savior either. I'll get back to that in a few moments. And if we do not believe this, we cannot trust that he cares for us. But he does. He didn't have to create the world and the universe. He did not have to create us. He does not need his creation. He doesn't need us. And yet he decided to do that. So what is God's act of creation? It is an act of pure, holy, and divine love. That's what it is. And an act of his grace. He created everything in order for him to be able to share himself. To share his holiness, his majesty, his love, his mercy, his kindness, and his grace. He created so that you might know him. He created so that Everything that exists can be under his blessing. He created so that we can enjoy fellowship with him. So that we might share in his righteousness and holiness. We exist by his act of sovereign good pleasure. Out of mere grace. Consider that. When God created the entire universe, he in particular narrowed his focus down to one place in the universe, that is planet Earth. That's where he determined to put mankind. That's where he determined to showcase his grace and his mercy. That's where he cast Satan down upon. That's where he sent his son to, to die for us. And at the end of the age, his son will return to this earth. Planet Earth has been singled out for God's particular vision, his master plan for history and redemption and renewal. And the conclusion we can draw from this is that we must trust this creator God. He made us for his purpose. And if he can create the world and the universe by the word of his mouth, surely we can trust his divine power and might and love. Surely we can trust him to care for us and give us what we need to fulfill the purpose for which he created us. But then we also have to submit to his will and to his guidance, don't we? This knowledge of our creator ought to stir up in us a desire to respond to his love. He not only owns us as creator, but he loves us as our heavenly father 
So how, how, then, how can we live then as if he doesn't exist? Or act as if his will doesn't matter? And so often we do exactly that, don't we? We commit our favorite sins when no one else is looking. Forgetting that God can see us too. We think evil thoughts that we would never dream of whispering into the wind. And we forget that God knows our thoughts before we even think them. Sometimes we live and act as if God is a kindly grandfather in the sky. It's kind of nice to have him around, especially when you're in trouble. But God is Elohim, the mighty one, the supreme being, the creator, and he holds the whole world in his hands. And he is also able to judge that which he created. Again, are we acutely aware of that as well? He is the God who was and is and he is coming. And we owe this God our love and our allegiance our obedience, and our worship, we owe him everything. Not only because he created us, but also because he has redeemed us. He is the God who made us, but he's also the God who saves us. And we need saving. We need redemption, don't we? Because, truth be told, we've ruined God's good creation, haven't we? By our sin, our fall into sin, the whole creation is ruined. And we have offended God who made us. And yet God did not abandon his creation. After Adam and Eve betrayed their creator, God came to them and he intervened on behalf of his creation and on behalf of his children whom he had made. So we owe him for who he is and for what he has done and also for what he is doing. And as we consider this last point, let's first take a closer look at the first two phrases in verse 2. The earth was without form and void. And the second phrase, and darkness was over the face of the deep. These are two complementary phrases, and they draw the big picture for us. We learn from this that the beginning, in the beginning, the earth was formless. A mass of material, a blob of matter matter and material without a definite shape or form, formless. It's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy 32 to describe a wasteland. It's used in Isaiah 34 to describe a desolate place. Isaiah 41 to describe an empty place. Isaiah 59 to describe a confused place. So in the beginning, earth is not inhabited. It's not productive, it's not formed, it's not shaped, it's not able to support life. It still needs to be formed and shaped, to conform, to support life. It's unfinished, it's it's raw material waiting for the creator to go to work, to develop it and organize it. And yet it contained everything that he needed or wanted to do so. And we see how he does that in verses 3 and following. But in verse 2... We just have the raw material. So the earth was without form, but it was also void. That means it was desolate, barren, empty, uninhabitable. And it was dark. Light comes in verse 3, and light-bearing objects come in verses 9 and 10. But in the beginning, there is deep darkness. 
No light, no life. Pitch black, blacker than black. And finally, it was deeply covered in water. And the phrase, the face of the deep and the face of the waters, those are also parallel phrases referring to the same thing. That's how the Hebrew language works in the Bible. So the earth began as formless and empty, and darkness covered a global flood in the beginning of time. And from this formless and empty mass, Elohim would form and fashion his creation. And note well that already before he begins to do this, he is already caring for it. We're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is moving, is hovering over the surface of the waters that cover this mass of material. What does that mean? It means God is not distant from his creation. To use very colloquial language, like a good project manager, he's right on site. He is giving it his full attention. This place is going to be like nothing else in all creation. This is where Elohim is going to showcase his glory and his majesty and his love and his justice, his mercy, his wrath, his grace in all its glory. The Holy Spirit was hovering. It's a very rare word in the Old Testament used only in two other places, most notably in Deuteronomy 32 where it describes how an eagle hovers over its nest or hovers over its young. When a mother eagle teaches its young to fly, it pushes them out of the nest, but then it hovers over them, ready to catch them if they're going to fall or if they can't fly properly. It's it's an act of love. It's an act of care and concern. But the word also has the connotation of action, ready to go, like that eagle is, is ready to swoop underneath its young. So a connotation of energetic potential. As if the text is implying that the Holy Spirit is ready to burst into action to give birth to God's creation. That's exactly what happens in the following verses. There we see how God brings order from chaos and design out of the darkness and life from the emptiness. And the Holy Spirit is the executor of God's plan. And as we hope to see in following sermons, the triune God begins to work to create quickly and instantly and miraculously. But in the beginning already, the Holy Spirit is caring for God's creation, watching over it, making sure it is ready for God's mighty works to be displayed. And again, think about that. If the Holy Spirit cares so much for an earth that is formless and void, empty and dark and deep, how much more must he not care for us? How much more does he not care for a world that is full of life? God told the prophet Jonah that he had pity not only on the people who lived in the city of Nineveh, but also on the cattle in that city. Therefore, he did not destroy it. We sang from Psalm 104 that God takes care of the cattle and the sheep and the goats. He feeds them. Jesus tells us God sees and knows every bird that falls to the ground. How much more will he not care for you 
who are redeemed by his son, adopted as his child, and chosen for everlasting life. You see, congregation, something else that we need to be aware of that is already in Genesis chapter 1. We not only meet God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but we also meet God the Son in these first verses. And now we're going to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And notice how it starts. Same words as Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word here in John chapter 1 refers to Jesus Christ who became incarnate, the Son of God who became a man. He would come into the very world that he spoke into existence. The creator would come to join his creation, to live among the fallen and sinful creatures whom he intended for his glory. He is the God who said, let there be light and separated the waters from the land. Paul writes in Colossians 1 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Congregation, we have been created by the Son of God and for him. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for the glory of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yes, Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnate Son of God. He is God the Creator, the eternal God, without beginning or end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we meet the triune God. And this God, congregation, this God hovers over your life. He comes to you. He calls you. He changes you. He makes you a new creation. That's a far greater miracle than anything that happens in Genesis chapter 1. Creation is nothing compared to what he has done for you. God is making you into a new creation, and it cost him everything. (laughs) Creating the world, that was nothing. He spoke, and it was there. But to create you into the image of Christ, that cost him dearly. He had to come to earth, take on fallen human flesh, live live in a fallen world amongst fallen people. Live amongst those who are in the kingdom of darkness to redeem them from the darkness, to shine the light into that darkness, to bring us into the kingdom of light. And all of this was already in the mind of the triune God, even before the beginning. When he created heaven and earth, when he said, let there be light, he already had this in mind. He already had you in mind. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and as daughters through Jesus Christ. And of course, we need to realize that like the psalmist says in Psalm 51, we are born in sin and iniquity. We are born in darkness and chaos. We are formless and void unless we are born again. We cannot enter the kingdom of light. Unless God in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, hovers over us and in us and takes us and molds us and forms us and fashions us into children of the Most High God, we will not see the light of life. When God says, let there be light, he breathes eternal life into you. You cannot cause yourself to be reborn No more than the planets could birth themselves. It requires divine intervention. A divine act of Elohim, the omnipotent one who creates life where there is no life. And all of this is contained in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. An enormous truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Congregation, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, visitors, believe in him. Know who he is. Believe what he has done. And trust what he is doing. Amen.